advanced technology can you imagine if attila was born today and just did the same shenanigans but with guns Whew. now it gets a little bit more scary yeah that's like putin <laughs> little bits little bits a little similar putin sucks though honestly attila was awesome i'm not afraid to say it putin stinks <laughs> you heard it here first folks yeah gems of history podcast thinks that putin stinks i honestly think we're the first history podcast to officially come out and say that they're anti-putin so what's the rest of the industry doing after after that putin stinks line i'm just gonna put in like that video where it's like the the mcdonald's iced tea where the, oh, everyone's yeah. just like oh, oh. <laughs> put that sound effect in the background that's honestly that's comedic gold Man, we got it we're back right there we are back and we're back with the gems of history podcast welcome everybody this is your host jacob shop speaking and with me today i have not the scourge of god mm. unless he wants to be no, he, I gave up those days. <laughs> he could be anything he wants because he's Evan Roosh. Oh, wow. Nice. Thank you. Definitely not the scourge of God. I uh, haven't earned that title, nor do I <laughs> plan <yet>. to. <laughs> or Nor do I plan to. But I mean, maybe I'll just do something so silly on these airwaves that... You're going to assassinate one of your brothers to take over the kingdom? Hey, if you... That'll be the ultimate test to see if they actually listen to my podcast. <laughs> if I get a text saying hey. like, "Hey man," um, so I was listening. Uh, what's uh, what's up? Do we need what, to what's talk? The, what's the deal? Like, right? Like, I thought like we just hung out. Do we need to plan to kill our other brother? Right? Is that the way to do this? <laughs> <laughs> We're not even competing for a throne or anything. No, <laughs> just <laughs> at most, it'd be like. I don't know, my dad's recliner in his living room. <laughs> Which one of us wants it, but But we are here to talk about the actual scourge of God from history, Attila the Hun. Yes. This is this is the second part where we we will actually get more into his life. I mean, we we gave like a brief overview of the background that kind of led to the lead up to how he became one of the greatest emperors in Hun history, mm-hmm. which short history, but very intense and interesting history. Right. Like we mentioned in episode one, uh, this man was very ruthless. Uh, quite literally, for the most part, I guess, took no prisoners. Uh, and if he did, he conscripted them into his army. He was a man of intense ambition and intense ferocity. And he was the one that earned the nickname the Scourge of God, which coming from the the Holy Roman, or not the Holy Roman Empire at the time, but the Roman Empire uh, meant a lot. Yeah. So I'm going to read just a quote quick from a historical account from Jordanus, who was a 4th or 5th century historic scholar who wrote about Attila. And this is a quote kind of describing Attila as a person. So, quote, He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the scourge of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind by the rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes hither and thither, so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in councils, 
gracious to suppliants, and lenient to those who were once received under his protection. He was short in stature, with a broad chest and a large head. His eyes were small, his beard was thin and sprinkled with gray. He had a flat nose and swarthy complexion, revealing his origin. So that's just a description of Attila as a person. So he wasn't, by all accounts, he wasn't very big, but he was very imposing, I would say. Not a big man, but huge personality, if you will. Unbelievably big. It's not about the looks. It's about the personality. (laughs) It applies to dating and to conquering the Roman Empire. If you're a scourge of all the lands, I'm looking for you. Right. (laughs) Editing your Bumble and Tinder profiles as (laughs) we speak. (laughs) Some call me the scourge of God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to scourge that ass. All right, we're back. Oh, goodness. (laughs) And on that note, Evan, take us away with Attila the Hun, part two. Man, Attila the Hun, part two. So we left off uh, last episode. If, Of course, if you have listened to episode one, what are you doing listening to this one? But we concluded episode one with the breaking of the most recent peace treaty between the Huns and the Romans, uh, naturally by Attila. Uh, as he launched the greatest war the Eastern Roman Empire had ever seen. The beginning of the military campaign saw the decimation of Roman armies at the river... (laughs) (laughs) My eyes straight up played a trick on me. So Attila decimated the Roman armies at the river Utus... Uh, though he suffered great losses himself. For those at home, Evan just looked like he won the lottery and had to look at his ticket like six times right. to see if it was right. My raffle number, and it was all for the word Utus. Utus. U-T-U-S. It's a tough one. I thought that there was an L in there. I'm like, oh man, maybe I need to put on my glasses. Uh, he then uh, decimated a different Roman army at... Chersonius in the Gallipoli Peninsula. (laughs) I think it it might be Gallipoli. I don't know. Wow. That's just, what a time. Uh, He and his Huns then went on to sack over 70 cities in the Balkans alone. He and his Huns sounds like his his honeys. (laughs) Him and his baddies just went I mean, he did have multiple wives. Oh, this man had, like... King Solomon number of wives, I believe. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk about one coming up pretty soon. That's the reason for why he goes to war again. Yeah. Uh, but he sacked over 70 cities in the Balkans and took his army deep into Greece, but was stopped at. Take a guess at what place. It, of the year one hint is this was a spot of another famous battle in Greece. Oh, What's it called? Thermopylae. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So funny enough, the Greeks actually stopped Attila the Hun's army at the same place that they, well, they didn't stop the Persians at Thermopylae. Almost. Almost. Which we're going to do a whole episode on the Spartans because the story about the Spartans is kind of insane. Right. But they were stopped at Thermopylae, uh, which led to yet another peace treaty negotiation with harsh penalties for the Romans. So what the recurring theme of what the Huns would do would be invade, make a peace treaty where they were given a ton of gold, break said treaty for whatever reason, invade again, 
make another peace treaty for more gold and so on and so forth and to continue that. And it was at this point that the Hunnic Empire was now at the height of its power and reach, with Attila ruling over Scythia, Germania, and Scandinavia. And I just want to read a little bit of a quote from... Uh... Uh, it is from Aminius Marcellinus, well, the historian we mentioned in the first episode. But he kind of talks about, like, he gives a description from that time period of their fighting tactics. So, he pretty much says, When attacked, they will sometimes engage in regular battle. Then, going into fight in order of columns, they will fill the air with varied and discordant cries. More often, however, they fight in no regular order of battle, but by being extremely swift and sudden in their movements, they disperse and then rapidly come together again in loose array, spread havoc over vast plains, and flying over the rampart, they pillage the camp of their enemy almost before he has become aware of their approach. It must be owned that they are the most terrible of warriors because they fight at a distance with missile weapons, having sharpened bones admirably fastened to the shaft. When in close combat with swords, they fight without regard for their own safety, and while their enemy is intent upon parrying the thrust of their swords, they throw a net over him and so entangle his limbs that he loses all power of walking or riding. Yeah, one of their tactics was literally lassoing people off of their horses. <laughs> Which is just like, how defeating is it that you were a soldier that has trained your entire life to fight, and then they just throw a net on you. Right. <laughs> You've just been trading for 20 years as a fierce Roman legionary. No one taught me how to fight <laughs> against this. Yeah, then, then you're beaten by a net. <laughs> what are you, a Scooby-Doo character? Oh, like, <laughs> what are you, a fish on the Mediterranean? <laughs> but that, that quote kind of just shows you that at the time, People thought that this was such a chaotic form of of way to fight, and yeah. no one really knew how to combat this. It was so swift and so quick that no, they pretty much said there was no way to set up an early warning system for when the Huns were coming because they came in and they did their job as quickly as possible so that they could get in, get out, and move on to the next city. Right, and like they had all these great weapons, like a bow that could hit someone. Made, from a bow 80. made of bone. Very strong, very yeah. strong. A bone. <laughs> <laughs> We're stretching. It's, We're stretching here. The the amount of seconds that you emphasize the bone. <laughs> I had to make beautiful. sure the audience gets it. <laughs> <laughs> but the Huns' real main weapon uh, throughout their history was honestly fear. Like it's reported that Hun parents placed binders on their children's heads which would gradually deform their skulls, giving them a menacing appearance. Yeah. And uh, the Huns killed men, women, and children alike and decimated almost everything and, every, everything and everyone in their path. So their main weapon was fear, which caused them to receive a ton of money and tribute from people that just did not want any of their... did not want any of the noise, to put it uh, very, very lightly. Yeah, so... Kind of going off of the appearance, the same man who I read the description, who I read the description from of Attila earlier, Marcellinus or uh, Ammianus, whichever name you want to call him, but he he describes the Huns as follows: the nation of the Huns surpasses all of their barbarians in the wildness of life. 
And though the Huns do just bear the likeness of men of a very ugly pattern, oh damn, they are so likely ad- or they are so little advanced in civilization that they make no use of fire. So he's he's pretty much slandering these wow. people. Wow! But then he goes on later in that passage to describe their tactics in mm-hmm. war. So it's he knows like these people aren't the best looking, and they're not the most advanced. This is just fitting into. But this this really just goes along with the Roman viewpoint at the time of barbarians or barbaric people, you know, where it's just, they're not very advanced, they're ugly, but they're good at fighting. Right. Dang. He literally said, like, yo mama so ugly. <laughs> yeah. How ugly is she? When, when people say that she a honey, they mean H-U-N. Oh, <laughs> And this is why you come back. Ah, uh, this is, wow, that was, man, in my head, I thought that was going to be a lot more funny. It was good. I, I liked it. Oh, my goodness. But uh, up until this time, Attila had been on relatively good terms with the Western Roman Empire. So, again, keep in mind, we have the Western and the Eastern Roman Empires. And Attila was actually pretty good with the Western Roman Empire, thanks, to, thanks in part to his relationship with General Atus, or are we going Atus, Atius? Atius. Atius, gotcha. I think. Um, Atius? Atius. I, I don't know. I said Atius last episode, so. We'll go Atius. That changed in 450 AD, however, when one Princess Honoria, sister of the Western Roman Emperor Valentinian III, appealed to Attila for help. Ooh. Drama. Honoria wanted to escape and arrange marriage. <laughs> I'm just imagining her reading the account that I just read. Where <laughs> yeah, he, they're so ugly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they appear like men, but they're very ugly. Oh, I need to send my, my wedding, my engagement ring there. <laughs> I need to appeal to him. She's just like, don't send me there. I heard that they're so how, ugly they spell how, H. How bad is the guy that you get, get set up in an arranged marriage with that you have to appeal to a people that are, are called, A, devils. Yes. And then also called kind of like men but ugly but ugly it's <laughs> got goblins be, if you will it's got to be a pretty bad guy that you're set up to marry oh man so she was she wanted to escape an arranged marriage to like an aristocrat that her brother was forcing on her but again he must have just been like either the poorest dude or just the ugliest dude yeah, ah man like we said it's not about looks it's about personality I mean, to ask for the scourge of God to help, though. But uh, so she sent a message to Attila along with a ring, basically saying, Attila, I need you to help me get out of this marriage. That is, of course, paraphrasing quite a bit. Yeah. uh, However, Attila interpreted this message and this ring as a wedding proposal. Well, Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He interpreted it as an opportunity. (laughs) Right. He's like, this is interesting. Whether it was actually he wanted to be married to her or whether it was ulterior motives (laughs) remain to be seen. (laughs) But either way. (laughs) Yeah. So Attila promptly claimed Honoria as his newest bride. And like we mentioned, he had quite a few at this point. And demanded half of the Western Roman Empire as her dowry, basically as just the gift for him marrying her. A small payment. 
a small thing of just half of all your stuff. I just stuff. want half your empire. I don't ask for a lot. Just, just half get... the empire. Right. <laughs> and the goths are like, we had to fight an entire war just to get right. our small little settlement. How right. come you get a ring we and you to... get half the empire? We had to freaking sack Rome yeah, to, literally. Get, to get this small chunk of land. The guy who was like in charge of us, yeah, he died. Yeah. Because we had to sack Rome. Rome. <laughs> Uh, naturally, Emperor Valentinian III refused Attila. Uh, he, for whatever reason, wanted to give this man half of his empire. Uh, Attila, however, was not one to give up and promptly waged war against the Roman, Western Roman Empire, basically immediately. And like Jacob mentioned, most historians believe that this wedding proposal was just an excuse to invade the West. Opportunity. It presents itself in a lot of different ways. Yes. <laughs> Either through rings, whether it's, you know, a sword landing a certain way, but uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. Very unrelatable um, whenever you think about, like, man, my life's kind of tough. Just think about being someone that had to go up against the Huns. <laughs> Just think about being, uh, <laughs> being, being a woman set to be married to an aristocrat you don't want to get married to. So you'd appeal to a foreign leader for help. Mm-hmm. And instead of helping you, he invades the country that you live in. All of her people were just like, what the hell, man? <laughs> yeah. We were so cool with this guy up until Public now. Public enemy number one. And oh. you think you got it hard. Right. Imagine being rejected by someone considered so ugly <laughs> that they were called the scourge Actually, of Actually, I think she was almost too accepted by him. <laughs> right. Yeah. So accepted, he's like, yeah, I'll just become ruler. Right. Easy peasy. So in the spring of 451 AD, Attila launched his attack on Gaul, also modern-day France, with 200,000 men. Which is insane for, like, ancient times. Truly insane. Like, I believe... I tried to find out the percentage of... Like, what percent of this was of, like, the entire human population. I couldn't find great numbers, but... This is insane for help for an army I mean, at this point. By what, like 1400s, whatever the, the Black Plague occurred, I think it was mm-hmm. like early 1400s. Mm-hmm. The entire population of most of Europe was like 75 million people. Right. So consider it significantly yeah. less than that at this period in time. Yes. So yeah. 200,000 men is a large proportion of a fighting force, especially considering that Ooh, that's yeah. fighting men. Yeah. And in modern days, it's considered that about a quarter of a population is considered to be men of fighting age for mm-hmm. an army. So, there's a lot of people. Right. And traveling with these men were all the different supply lines, all the different supply people as well, probably workers, probably slaves. So, we're talking about a huge, not fighting force when you bring in like everyone else, but just a huge movement of people. All coming for for France, modern day France at the time, Gaul. Uh, he would square up against the Roman army led by his old ally, General, and I forgot how we're oh, pronouncing Flavius. Flavius. Flavius Atius. <laughs> Flavius Atius. That's how I imagine he sounds. <laughs> oh. He just sounds scared at his own like shadow. <laughs> oh no, Attila. He's like this renowned like general though so right truly one of the most decorated military minds and the gems of history podcast 
give him oh oh Attila. That's our impression of him for no we particular. We meet again, and ba- he sounds like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is up with that? Oh, Attila, there's only room for one of us in this town. <laughs> He's got a cowboy hat and a whip. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> uh, but uh, General Flavius uh, joined forces with the Visigoths and Gauls, uh, as well as the Franks, Burgundians, and the Alans. So they were assembling quite a sizable force themselves. It's funny because the Allens just sound like the family next door. <laughs> right. Hey, I just got to go with the Allens last week. Oh, weekend. hey, Frank, are you coming out to the battle later? Ah, uh, no, I think I might pass on this one. I don't really trust that general. Please come fight with me. <laughs> we're probably the only two that fight this whole thing. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this battle would be known as the Battle of Catalanian Plains. Which would come to define Europe for truly decades and centuries to come. This is the biggest pivot point in Attila's life. Yes. Because if this battle goes one way, he pretty much rules over most of the Roman Empire, and he rules into Asia. Mm-hmm. And if he loses, it's his, pretty much his first major loss, and he mm-hmm. could get pushed back, and that could be the end of the Huns completely. So, mm-hmm. So with this battle... Uh, like a lot of the hunt activities that we talked about, a lot of the actual details are unknown. So, for example, the actual location of the battle is kind of disputed. Uh, some say it was towards the city of Orleans in France. Some say it was during, excuse me, close to the city of Chalons in France. So the exact location is a little disputed. Um, but for the most part, it's Again, one of the biggest battles of this era. And like we mentioned in episode one, Flavius Aetius. <laughs> I, can't, I can't look at you while saying the Hi. name. Hi. Uh, <laughs> uh, who was Attila's opponent, was actually a hostage to the Visigoth and the Hunnic courts when he was a boy. And during this time, he became extremely knowledgeable of the Huns and their battle activity and even used them, so used Hunnic mercenaries in previous battles and wars as mercenaries. Uh, this general was extremely skilled and even reconquered a majority of Gaul after the land was lost to invaders. It's funny, though, too, because as he was learning Hunnic traditions and Hunnic battle tactics, he was teaching mm. the Huns about siege tactics and stuff like that. How to use a battering ram. So... As Attila is going through the Eastern and Western Roman empires, he's using siege tactics that he got taught by Flavius. Oh no! To take to take over Roman towns, so it it's literally both sides taking like taking the heat from what they taught the other side. Yeah. Once it gets to this point, that one really came back to bite both of them. Yeah. Quite in the in the butt. So back to the point where some of the. Details uh, before the battle are a little disputed. Uh, Some sources claim that Attila was actually besieging the city of Orleans, and when Aetius arrived, he was forced to abandon it. Other sources say that Aetius prevented a siege altogether and got there in time. But regardless, the land around Orleans uh, was terrible for cavalry, so Attila pulled his troops out of the area Uh, and retreated to an area where he knew that he would have the supposed advantage. One thing we do know, though, 
is that he used what is known as the Sword of Mars. Yes. Which I think we, we need to take a little pivot to talk about because this story is utterly insane in its own right. <laughs> Absolutely. So the Sword of Mars was kind of a Hunnic fairy tale or like a Hunnic folklore that the kids kind of all learned about when they were younger. The elders would kind of tell them about it. It was supposedly this Scythian sword, which was this ancient people where it was this famous sword made from the the metal of a meteorite by a god. So it was literally nicknamed either the Sword of Mars, the Sword of God, or it will come to be known as the Sword of Attila, which is amazing that you can rename a Sword of God into the Sword of You. Very strong. <laughs> That's a power move if I've ever seen one. So when kids in the Hunnic traditions were growing up, they would kind of be told by elders, look for the sword, search for it, and he who finds God's sword will rule the world. So kind of some big shoes to fill. So at this point, the sword is lost when Attila is around because <laughs> one of the traditions is during, during the beginning of this sword's history, it was the Hunnic people and the Magyar people who were the two kind of co-owners of this sword. And to decide who gets the sword, they decided, we're going to give this thing to a blind man. <laughs> we're going to make him spin around seven times. And then he's going to throw that bitch as far as he can. <laughs> he's going to yeet it as far as he can. And which, if, it's facing, if the tip is facing west... That means it's the Hun sword. If it's facing east, that means it's the Magyar sword. (laughs) But apparently he tossed it so far that the wind actually affected how far it flew. And they just said it faced west. So the Huns got it. And the Magyars were like, okay, the sword's gone now anyways. (laughs) Absolutely. This man must have been ripped if he was just hucking the sword. A medieval version of Daredevil. Ooh, it's just, I'd watch that series. Oh, but it's just, it's but just, it's just him spinning. The story, the story. If you simplify this story, it's get an ancient relic, correct? Check. Decide that it's two different people that might own it. Okay, check. Figure out a way to to decide on who actually gets it. Check. Done and done. That way of deciding is giving it to a blind guy. Sure. It's one of the most it. ancient relics in your, in your people's history. <laughs> you're giving it to a blind man, and you're going to tell him to throw it as far as he can. <laughs> Go get it. And they were shocked that it was lost. <laughs> and somehow... I'm just picturing just everyone gathered around this blind man throwing the sword, just being like, hey, man, where did that go? First of all... Yeah, where where's it go? But yeah. you're also taking the risk that he's just gonna chuck this at one of you guys right. and kill you. Well, if you get stabbed by it, do you just become God? I guess. But anyways, the sword got lost, and the story goes that there was a shepherd who was watching his animals out grazing, and one of the sheep or cow were kind of hurt. They were limping a little bit, so the shepherd noticed a trail of blood, followed that trail of blood. And then something caught his eye. So after looking into the grass a little deeper, found the tip of a sword sticking straight out of the ground and immediately dug it up. And it was taken to Attila. And then he was the now the owner of the sword of God. <laughs> this so whole, funny. The whole story behind the sword is entirely preposterous and hilarious. Right. 
It was just hanging out in grass. Yeah. I mean, granted, it was, it sounds like it was buried a little bit, but it was just in the grass. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it is kind of cool, though, because... It sounds like when I lose a golf ball. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's just in the tall grass. It's cool, though, because the Hunnic people, as we've mentioned, were very much archers. They didn't really focus on hand-to-hand combat as much, and when they did use hand-to-hand combat, they used axes for the most part. So they didn't really use swords at all. So the fact that Attila, and I mean, most depictions of artists around this time show him with a sword. So, I mean, there has to be some merit to the fact that he did use a sword in battle. So using the sword of God, which is pretty much the only sword in your army, being the leader of the Huns, is a pretty badass thing to say. Attila literally said, no one else gets the sword but me. It's just me. It's me. I only want And one. it's the sword of God. You guys can use axes. Those are just fine. <laughs> it's, I am the only one that gets the sword, and it's the one of God. Yeah. Ever so, heard of them. So that's what he's bringing into the battle of Claude, the Claude, I don't remember how to say it. Catalan Plains. Catalan Plains. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's just, I wanted to side tangent into that because the story is so amazing. It is incredible. That story comes from historynaked.com, by the way. So. Thank you, HistoryNaked.com, for that. I, w- I just, I would love to see the reaction of the people gathered around, just looking for the sword. Was it a public spectacle? Like, did a ton of people witness this, or did they just push a blind man into a field, everyone else left, so they couldn't see where it went, and oh, then they just had him spin and, and throw it? Right, and then... I was but then th- how are you going to find it? I was just going to say, does the blind man try to find his way back? I don't get no, that when you You're using the sword to figure out who owns it between you and the Magyar, so... Mm-hmm. You're just going to, like, go search for it? Like, why are you not watching where it goes? What if it goes, yeah, right. <laughs> what if it goes north or south? Like, Here. Is that just... Hey, hey, Harold? Harold. Yeah. Yep. You're you're our blind guy for the day. Okay. Oh, me? Go stand next to this giant chasm in the earth, and we're going to have you throw this sword. Whatever you do, do not throw it in that giant hole. Okay, you see it? See? Oh, okay. That just was don't, so rude. Don't throw it that way. <laughs> what (laughs) (laughs) so back to the battle of catalan plains uh the huns the hunnic army naturally were very cav heavy with elite horse archers at its core so forming the actual metal uh battalion if you will of the army uh with the romans of course being very infantry focused when the battle lines were drawn uh for the romans the visigoths manned the right flank and formed a full shield wall with archers behind them. The Visigoths also took a higher position on a cliff behind, excuse me, the Visigoth cavalry took a higher position behind the shield wall and archer battalion on the right flank. Allen cavalry held the center, while the left side was held by Romans, Franks, Burgundians, and Saxons. And they mostly considered, or excuse me, mostly consisted of shield wall and arrows. And if you're unfamiliar with the shield wall, that is just that, uh, I'm trying to think of a movie. Oh, in the movie, I guess 300, again, since we brought up before, literally uh, one man uh, bends and has a shield covering the lower body and the next man behind them puts their shield over top. Uh, covering the rest of the body and in some occasions in some cultures they would even do a third level uh, with another man having their shield up above 
uh, covering like the head as well as the person behind them. So that basically consists of shield wall. And of course, there's long spears to, you know, do the whole stabbing thing. Yeah. And then they would like walk in lockstep and right. like they would have some sort of chant usually. It's just like, oh, <gasps> nice. <laughs> Did not plan that. Yo, you want to you form a shield wall? You want to do a podcast together? Oh, you better. <laughs> All right. Scrap the shield wall idea. <laughs> yeah. That was actually the original idea. It was just me, you and Mark being like, guys, hey, shield wall what later. Do, what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the Hun side. Uh, Attila and his main army of Huns formed the center with the Ostrogoth cavalry uh, that were part of their army, uh, led the left side with infantry behind them. And then on the right side, we had, excuse me, more, uh, more Hunnic cavalry on the right side. So Attila and his main group in the middle, Huns to the right, Ostrogoths to the left, and again, primarily all cavalry. Attila's Huns then formed a wedge formation and charged the center when fighting broke out. Their volley broke the center of the Gothic line, and after, Attila's forces split. So if you remember in uh, episode one, when we talked about their battle tactics, they would often charge ferociously at the center, firing a constant volley of arrows, as well as having arrows come from over the top and then splitting off to the left and to the right. So they did this. Uh, they shattered the mid of the Roman line and then broke off. One went left, one went right. And they were shooting arrows the entire time. Uh, the shield wall for the Romans was successful in stopping a lot of the arrows. However, not so much for the archers that were behind them, <laughs> as you can imagine. Uh, after this initial charge... Both sides, so Huns as well as Romans, formed their shield walls and charged at each other. Again, with lockstep going, <laughs> Seeing an opportunity, Attila actually circled back and charged the center again. This time, flanking the Visigoths and actually killing their leader, Theodoric. Which was a huge loss, because Theodoric, of course, being the king and the leader of the Visigoths, but he was also... A very good battle general, um, keeping everyone organized. In fact, the Visigoths were actually just about to break until the Alans, who were the ones that retreated at the beginning of the battle, rallied and charged back into the center, uh, beating back Attila's forces, causing them to kind of circle back again. Yeah, and the Visigoths were like kind of, they, they weren't entirely broken by their leader dying honestly they were just kind of enraged mm. uh, by some accounts that i read it, was, it just made them very mad right so they had they had even more vigor to fight against this guy who just killed their leader i have just had it up to here with these huns first <laughs> they just it's enough they take all of our land and then they kill theodoric yeah boys you get them <laughs> <laughs> go get him go get him avenger king oh my gosh that is true that is just terrific uh however despite the allens rallying attila felt that victory was close and ordered all of his remaining troops both infantry and cavalry to charge and to join the fray it is at this exact moment when attila ordered all of his troops to charge that thorismund the son of the fallen king, Theodoric. Strong name. Therismund. Very strong. That guy sounds like he should be a Viking king. 
Honestly, maybe he just became in later. But he descended from his hiding position uh, at the nearby ridge behind the Visigothian flank. And after he got past the initial line of battle, he was able to get behind the Huns and to their left, or got to their left flank, encircled them, and then charged at them, basically going uninhibited all the way through the Hunnic lines. And this is the big disadvantage of the way that the Huns fought, because the way that the Romans were used to fighting was very organized, very rigid, structured. So they had countermeasures for something like this if it happened. Uh, Julius Caesar was a very famous general for having a countermeasure for getting flanked, where he would have three, three pretty much blocks of his army, and if they did get people that ended up getting behind them, he would literally just have the one block do a full turn so that he had a front on the back and a front on the front, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. so that they're fighting forward on both sides of the line so that they're not really at a disadvantage on either end, which with this Hunnic way of fighting, it was very chaotic. They didn't have any rigid line or anything. Mm-hmm. So it was very hard for them to counter something like a flanking maneuver. Right, right, right. And it literally cost them this battle. And because they're so used to just coming and sweeping through that they're not mm-hmm. used to having anyone f- have pretty much have an opportunity to get around like that. And even if it is, it's going to be such a small contingent. But Right. They just saw this forming group of uh, cavalry men just getting ready for a charge and looked over, looked at Attila and asked, can, can they do that? Is that allowed? Wait, they, have, they don't have a single arrow. What is going on? Are they, what is going- are they with us? Wait, <laughs> I thought we were the horse guys. <laughs> and then Adius was like, take that. <laughs> yeah. uh, Attila then promptly ordered a retreat after this extremely successful charge by Thorismund. It is, however, a mystery why Aetius did not pursue and finish off Attila and the Huns. And there are some rumors that I saw that Attila may have bribed him. He may have also just felt bad for Attila because they did have somewhat of a relationship growing up. Um, but whatever the reason, I mean, he did not pursue. I did see, too, that the, the archers that Attila did have were just able to kind of keep them at bay enough. Mm-hmm. That I it might not have been worth it, really. They would have suffered so many casualties just trying to move forward like that. Especially if they're retreating quickly on horseback. Trying to move your shield wall and everything like that is mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to keep a formation if you're going to want them to keep up with the line. So it, it might not have been worth it just because the they had better archers on the Hunnic side. So Right, and while these Huns are retreating, they can... They are fully capable of turning around and still shooting. Exactly. Even, even with like the reserve archers. But yeah, that's that's very true. So it yeah, it may have just been that the casualty numbers would have been too big to have justified it. It might have just been a stalemate or a loss even at that point. Because right. you're not gonna have a fighting force to come back with. So Yeah, more of a Pyrrhic victory when you uh lose all your troops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh the death toll of this this battle is unknown, but it's safe to say that it was tens and tens of thousands of men. It's considered one of the bloodiest battles in history. So Absolutely. Uh, Attila retreated back to his lands. However, uh, he invaded Italy only a year after this battle. So despite this huge loss uh, and a huge part of his fighting force as well, he decided to run it back when... Except this time went directly after Italy. It was pretty much just a 
a propagandistic victory, I guess you could mm. say, for the Romans, because it did show that this invincible force of the Huns was technically beatable. So it it kind of shattered the illusion that they were it, there was a force field around them that they couldn't be beat, whatever mm. you want to say. So there was some use to the loss. Right. It it didn't really hinder Attila at all. So, after Attila invaded Italy, or once he began invading in Italy, he promptly sacked Milan and was poised to continue on to the rest of the country, the rest of the peninsula. However, he decided to turn back after a delegation with Pope Leo came and... This is one of the more interesting moments of history, I think, because it's so unknown what the actual conversation was. But Pope Leo and Attila basically just started talking, and for whatever reason, Attila decided to pack up his things and return home. And at least in my opinion, this this is kind of a contentious point to me, because it does seem like a lot of the scholars that wrote about the Huns after the fact did try and do a job of slandering them because they were such an effective force against the Roman Empire and they didn't want to look like they were weak. So that, coupled with the fact that Christianity was now the leading religion in the area and the Pope was a very important figure, I think that could have just been a way for the Roman Empire to show Look how good our Pope is that he could turn back this this barbarian, this savage who is running through our country. So it, I think there's some something to that that it could be just maybe some sort of propaganda to try and get the people to rejoice and follow the Pope, follow Christianity as a whole. Because I did read too that it could have just been a like. He ran Attila just ran out of supplies. You're trying to feed a giant force this whole time, and you're pillaging every village you go to, so you're not going to have a lot to subsist on. Mm-hmm. Or there was a plague, per, possibly, that turned him back. Or it was the Pope. Or it was just a combination of a lot of different things. So I don't know if this was the single-handed reason, but I do think there was probably something to it just because of how many historians did write about it. So who knows? But I, I, I just thought that was interesting taking it from like a a modern perspective on it i think and i definitely agree with with your points uh, about using being a little bit of propaganda um i definitely think that with the way history was formed after this uh just meaning how like the holy roman empire became a thing how they used the story as propaganda to say look how great this pope is yeah um for example, um, I just did some quick research, and this is a quote from Catholic.com. So take a wild guess which way they Not sway. biased at all. Um, and now I quote here. According to pious legend, Pope Leo stood before Attila the Hun outside Rome and said these words. So first off, this happens not outside Rome. So strike one, Catholic.com. But anyway, so this is apparently what Pope Leo said according to Catholic legend. And again, the people of, excuse me, again, I quote, The people of Rome, once conquerors of the world, now kneel conquered. We pray for mercy and deliverance. O Attila, you could have no greater glory than to see suppliant at your feet, this people, for whom once all peoples and kings lay suppliant. 
You have subdued, O Attila, the whole circle of the lands granted to the Romans. Now we pray that you, who have conquered others, should conquer yourself. The people have felt your scourge. Now they would feel your mercy. It sounds like he was giving them a little bit of a therapy session. It sounds like, yeah, I, I mean, that's very true. It truly sounds like, hey, man, you've already won. You like, got to look inside, bro. You got to conquer the demons within, Attila. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe that is what happened. And Attila was just like, all right, I'll go back. But it just seems like that wouldn't have worked against someone like oh, Attila. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, we're not. We're not. I didn't mean to interrupt. But then just I continued reading on. Then after the Pope said these words, uh, apparently, and now this is a quote, then suddenly Attila's incredulous eyes beheld two giants flanking the pontiff, one on his right and the other on his left. The apostles Peter and Paul appeared, wielding swords of flame over the gray head of the Pope, who knelt in an attitude of humble submission. <laughs> Whoa. I mean. Yeah, that's... uh. If you want to say propaganda, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's that's um, that's uh, one way. So basically, to summarize, Peter and Paul showed up with lightsabers and they choke for force choke to till the hunt, told him to get out of here. Christianity has never been so cool. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> that's that moment right there. But yeah, so to summarize, the Catholic view on this is Pope Leo spoke those words, and then uh, over the Pope's shoulders. Attila saw the two most, some would say, most important saints of Christendom wielding flames of lights. It's like some little nerd showing up to a playground fight against a bully, and then behind him he's just got two bigger bullies. Two, yes. Yeah, yeah right, a throw down. But whatever the reason may be, uh, Attila decided to turn back. Um, again, could have been because there was disease going on in Italy. Could have been they were bribed. I think it's most likely that he just didn't have supplies to continue. Right. And maybe, I mean, Rome was sacked not a hundred years ago by the not gods. E yeah, like not even. 80 years ago, maybe. So maybe the Pope was like, dude, we don't have any money. <laughs> right. And if if he would have gotten stopped at the doors of Rome, how much time would he have been able to afford a siege? Right. From, like from Attila's perspective, how much time could he have lasted just trying to siege a city of Rome? So I, I, I think it was more so that it just wouldn't have been worth it at that point. So, mm -hmm. And now I believe, and I don't have it in front of me, because you may be asking, where's our man Flavius Aetius? Oh. Well, I believe at this point he had passed, correct? Most likely, yeah. Yeah, at this point, our man suffered. He, he let out one final ha. Oh. <laughs> And then uh, was late to rest. So disrespectful. Um, R.I.P. to a real one. Uh, R.I.P. Man, man, oh man. But, uh, so in 452, uh, Attila, after his brief invasion of Italy, turned back. And then in 453, Attila the Hun would die in bed. Supposedly due to either a nosebleed caused by a brain hemorrhage. After a heavy feast and drinking on his wedding nights to his new bride, Ildico. Dude got fucking ripped. <laughs> That's actually something that just has happened. Like, that, yeah. I believe this is how Genghis Khan died as well. I, yeah, the room, 
everything that I've read about him said that he drank like very moderately. He didn't really drink that much. So mm-hmm. this was a weird occasion. Like he, it, it wasn't something that he did a lot. So it was kind of odd. And everyone now like, I think it was because of his wife that he died one way way or another. Yeah. He's just so hyped to marry this girl that he killed himself from over drinking. Oof. But I also read something online that it was probably some lesion that formed on the inside of his throat from cirrhosis of his liver. And then it just exploded when he drank too much. And then blood poured out of his nose and mouth. And then everyone's like, oh, he had a nosebleed. I don't know. (laughs) Again, it's one of those things that's, we just don't know. So maybe come up with the most uh, creative thing and let us know on our social medias. There's but also a rumor that his wife just like... Just killed him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> poisoned him for the emperor. So. Right. Uh, the entire army fell into intense grief over the loss of their leader. Attila's horsemen smeared their faces with blood. This is the coolest thing ever. And rode slowly in a steady circle around the tent which held his body. This is the account of one historian. Uh, according to Roman historian Prissus of Pan- Panium, the men of the army had cut their long hair and slashed their cheeks so that the greatest of all warriors should be mourned not with tears or the wailing of women, but with the blood of men. Then followed a day of grief, feasting, and funeral games, a combination of celebration and lamentation that had a long history in the ancient world. That night, far beyond the frontiers of the Roman Empire, Attila was buried. His body was encased in three coffins, the innermost covered in gold, the second in silver, and the third in iron. The gold and silver symbolized the plunder that Attila had seized, while the harsh gray iron recalled his victories in war. I would hate to get stuck on the carrying duty for that. Oh, if you're a pole bearer. Three metal coffins. Yeah. With, with like, probably a 200-pound guy in the middle. Right. That's going to be heavy. And probably a bunch of loot in his coffin, I'm guessing, as well, his favorite things. With the sword of God. With the sword of God, not not to mention, That is the coolest funeral procession, though. You've literally got guys covering themselves in blood and telling women not to cry and then carrying you in... A gold-plated coffin. Yeah. Uh, then, according to legend, a river was then diverted. Attila was buried in the river's bed, and the water was then released to flow over it, covering the spot. Those who had taken part in the funeral were killed so that the burial place might never be revealed. So metal. Extremely metal. The like, ancient people just did it different. They just did it some way, that's for sure. They uh, they took their funerals very seriously, but also to, uh, not to call it the Egyptians again, but pff, Attila's grave has never been robbed. Never been found. Never even been found. You guys just made yourselves a prime target. Yeah. Well, we just had to build it underneath the perfect direction of stars. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a giant arrow pointing out of the sand for where my body is. Oh, no one come take it. <laughs> <laughs> Although they did just put a bunch of curses and stuff inside of them, so that's kind of cool. That is also very cool. That's all right. So it's one to one in terms of how cool the, each other's uh, funerals were. Following his funeral, Attila's empire was divided among his sons, who fought amongst each other for the greatest share. 
they squandered their resources and allowed the kingdom to fall apart in this discourse. And by 469 AD, which... 16 years. Yes, six. thank you for the math. I was trying to do it. Uh, 16 years after his death, the entire empire was gone. Well, because remember, too, the Huns were comprised of a bunch of different peoples. So yeah. it's, it's pretty much like individual groups of people kind of ruling themselves. And then when they get called upon, they come and fight for the Huns. So once the sons take over and they start infighting between themselves, all of these other people start saying, well, while they're fighting, we're going to take advantage and become our own people. So all of these smaller vassals of the, the Hun Empire pretty much just take this as prime time for them to do their own thing. And then as that happens, the Hun Empire just quickly just diminishes power because they're losing resources, they're losing people. So it's not going to last. They, did, they didn't have that sole unifying power anymore of Attila. Right. They didn't have that one man that held the sword of God to bring everyone in line. But that just shows how powerful Attila's yeah. presence was. So. Absolutely. Attila's memory, of course, lives on as one of the greatest military leaders of all time. He has been depicted since his death as the ultimate example of a warrior king. And a lot of, or excuse me, and most of the depictions of him, whether in Hollywood or through different fiction writings, portray him as this warrior king. One description of him even is Attila the Hun was the greatest battle captain of his age, his reputation striking terror in his enemies who both feared and respected the scourge of God. More than 1,500 years later, his name remains synonymous with aggressive cavalry and, of the, war- and the warrior ethos. So this man, very metal. Yeah, and I mean, for a guy who only lived... 60 years-ish, right. not even 60 years, Yeah, to have amassed such a large empire and created such a legacy for himself is very impressive, especially for a people that were relatively unknown other than this guy. Yeah. It's, it's very impressive that he was able to make such a name for himself. Right. He's the most... He's so famous that he transcends an entire group of people meaning like he's the identifying person for the Huns. especially for a group of people that literally didn't write about themselves they don't have their own history didn't have a history they have a 70 ad they have a history through another history like right? historical record so it's pretty insane absolutely fascinating man and there's there's rumors that like people have said we found his tomb throughout the years there's there's been a few but they've all pretty much been found to be hoaxes or fake. So as of now, we still have no idea where he is buried. He could, it could be any river, anywhere, any section of that river. So yeah, I, at this point, I feel like it probably just won't be found, but I guess we'll, we'll have to see. It's one of those things. I just hope it remains lost. I do too. Those cool things. At this point, it, it's surpassed its legacy and it's now, a part of me- like the mythos of the world. Right. And I think that's kind of cooler than if it becomes a reality, you know? Yeah, I, that's definitely one of those things that just is cooler as a mystery. Yep. Just let it be. Yep. Except one treasure hunter one day 
we'll find it. I mean, I'm I sure. feel like it'll be pretty obvious if we find three coffins inside of one another. Who could so. this be? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who this is. Hmm, that's a really... Why is his sword glowing? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just Frodo's sword from, from, Lord oh, right, from Lord of the Rings. Oh, man. But thus concludes the story of Attila the Hun. Two-parter, man. Two parts, double the fun. He deserves double it. the hun. Oh, 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 oh! oh. Uh, <laughs> all right, that's the last episode of the Gems of History podcast ever. Yep. Uh, end it. End it. Let's bury it in three coffins and send it in a send river. Send it into the river. Yep. <laughs> but yes, guys, I hope you enjoyed this series because it is such a fascinating story for a character and a people that really did not last that long. Because after the after his sons kind of in fought for the the throne it disintegrated and the people of the hunnic empire just kind of absorbed themselves into different groups so we don't even know who the hunnic people are at this point like where Mm -hmm. they descended out of they could have moved out of this area and gone somewhere else so we don't really know like who the descendants nowadays would be but yeah it's kind of an interesting story it's a weird it's a weird paradox of history that someone like him showed up right it's definitely uh a supernova if you will he shined bright and died very young yes as the word well i guess he wasn't young but the hunnic empire as a whole he was definitely a shooting star of history yes very bright very powerful did not last long no (laughs) but if you want to get a touch get a touch with us but (laughs) if you want to get in touch with us you can find us on twitter if you want a consenting touch if you want a consenting boop you can find us on twitter at gems underscore history you can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at Whatevskis, and then you can find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast, and then last but not least, the old clock app TikTok. You can find us at Gems of History Pod. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I'll be done researching one of our big topics yet by the time we get to the next episode, but hopefully I will before these come out so we'll see but hopefully i do and then we can have another big probably two or three parter coming at you a a pretty researched one so i'm looking for you can look forward to that i'm looking forward to it because i'm looking forward to it. it's a very fascinating story it's very dark and not fun well the first the first half is kind of fun but the the rest of it's not a classic jacob story It, it starts fun kind of not really. Yeah. I mean, fun for us. You're trying to sell that as fun so hard. I think we I just think can... it's fun because history is interesting. You're right. But everyone else is going to be like, why are you talking about such a depressing topic? I'm not having fun. <laughs> Shut up, Flavius. You're not even alive anymore. Not now, Flavius. <laughs> but hopefully we'll be back with that one when we're done. Otherwise, we'll, we'll throw a couple more smaller ones at you in, in between. But we're working on some big stuff. So mm-hmm. hopefully you guys are looking forward to that. I know we are. And then we can get those to you soon and give you the best product possible. So Absolutely. We will talk to you soon, guys. Have a great week. Adios.